If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. Welcome to the Legacy Leaders Podcast. Are you doing the best for your client to help them create their legacy? Are you creating a plan that goes far beyond finances to help people ensure that it becomes the driving force behind all decisions? On this podcast, hosts Katie Beth Hand and Stan Miller will help you with growing your practice and your client's peace of mind. Together, they bring the best and brightest minds to share with you how to help your clients develop their best legacy. And now, here are your hosts, Katie Beth and Stan. Welcome to the Legacy Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Garrity, and I'm honored to be with Jacob Stewart of Intervivos PLLC in St. George, Utah today. Welcome aboard, Jacob. Thanks. Thanks for having me. We're, we're glad to have you, and I think it'll be great for uh, our listeners to learn a little bit more about you and your expertise. I'm going to just read a bio off of your website to get a, a little more flavor for your extensive uh, background, knowledge, experience, and all of that. So Jacob is a managing attorney and partner for Intervivos PLLC and the LSPN Attorney Network. He oversees and directs the firm's operations and attorneys in the Southwestern United States, but works with advisors and clients throughout the United States. His practice is focused primarily on planning for business owners and high net worth individuals in areas such as income and estate tax planning, business structure, and succession planning, asset protection, and also charitable planning. He's also part of an elite team of subject matter experts that focuses on the dental industry. Before joining Intervivos, Jacob was the chief tax and asset protection consultant for a large asset protection company. Jacob has helped thousands of medical professionals and other small business owners across the country reduce their tax burden, protect their assets, and plan for future generations. On a more personal note, Jacob and his wife are the proud parents of six children. Jacob loves spending time with his family, serving his church, reading, playing ultimate frisbee, hiking, and spending time outdoors. He and his family recently spent two full weeks backpacking part of the Appalachian Trail. Jacob speaks fluent Spanish and French and aspires to learn Mandarin Chinese someday. He and his family live in southern Utah near Zion National Park. Jacob, again, it's great to have you on the Legacy Leaders Podcast. Thanks, Tim. And your bio gave us some great info, but tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background. Sure. So uh, first, a comment on the Appalachian hike. I don't necessarily recommend going 50 miles on the trail <laughs> with a four and a five-year-old. So for future reference, it was a cool trip, but uh, wait till the kids are a little bit older. Yeah, you'll be talking about that for years, probably. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they, they talk about it all the time. And the funny thing is about that trip, we had planned it for a month. We were going to spend a whole month on the trail kind of a bucket list item for me. And about a weekend, uh, my wife and I looked at each other and said, you know what, we're going to cut this short. And so we we booked a cruise while we were on the trail and, and went on our first cruise together as a family. And that was a lot more pleasant experience. You don't know until you try, right? It, it was the, the memories that count. And like you said, the kids will remember that forever. Well, there might be a good lesson there uh, for those who do life planning with you. You know, sometimes you go down one path and then you learn a little about it or life changes and you kind of shift course. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, go ahead, please. Yeah, you you asked a little bit about me. So I'll just give a a brief recap. So I was born and raised in Florida, 
go back actually several generations in Florida and uh, and I decided to break the mold when I went to Brigham Young University. So I moved out to Utah and uh, I met my wife who's from Colorado uh, while I was at, uh, at college and we decided to settle in Utah. So we did a stint in Washington, D.C. where I went to law school at George Mason Law School and uh, we spent a, a little time in Houston, Texas as we were growing the firm. But eventually we landed up here in southern Utah and, and we love it. Wow. And was uh, was there a break between undergrad, Brigham Young, and then law school at George Mason? And and either way, what kind of led you to go into law? Yeah. So I was planning from the beginning of my, uh, well, from partway through my undergraduate, I planned on going to law school. I did take a year break, though. My wife and I got married after I'd finished my bachelor's degree, but she had another year left. So I worked locally while she was finishing up her degree in international politics. And and then we headed out to, to Washington, D.C. Wow. Okay. And that was a, a big change for her, I'm sure, being from Colorado and then Utah. And, and then you were pretty busy during the day, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. She was pretty busy too. We had, we had by that time had our first child. So um, she kept uh, very, very busy. Now, did you go right into estate planning and tax planning or did you kind of evolve? No, no, that was an evolution. I had no idea when I was in law school, I had no idea what type of law I wanted to practice. Uh, originally, I thought I would do international law because I speak Spanish and French and and really like that. But over time, I realized that the hours and, and the crazy schedule and moving around and stuff that would be required if I did international law was just not worth it. And so so then I thought I'd do immigration law and interned for an immigration firm. And that just didn't quite work. Actually, it, it almost worked out. I had applied after law school, I applied for a job at an immigration firm. And as I, while I was waiting on their response, I came across an asset protection company, which was my first real job out of law school. And I interviewed with them and I really liked the concept of of helping people protect their assets from, you know, lawsuits and creditors and the IRS and all kinds of other other entities that try and take people's money from them. And so I really liked the concept. I interviewed with them. They liked me and and they hired me right away on the spot. The next day I got a call from the immigration firm that I had applied for and they said they were interested. And I just, I said, no, I, I already found this other thing that I think is going to fit me better. So that's where I started was actually an asset protection Wow. So that was, a, I guess, a different path than normal, but it actually exposed you probably in a more deep way uh, than you might have if you just started at a law firm and kind of started working with more senior planners, yeah. right? You, you saw a lot of different types of, of planning. Yeah. And- it, it, was, it was actually really unique because most of the time as attorneys, we get licensed in a state and then we focus on that state and all of our clients are in that state forever. But with the asset protection company, I was in-house counsel and they created structures all over the country. And so I had to research laws in all 50 states, and I even did one in Guam, one of the U.S. territories. And so I became really familiar with at least certain aspects of the law in all 50 states, which is really uncommon for an attorney. I evolved about a year in working for that company. We had a a CPA in-house that worked with our clients on tax strategy. She got a different opportunity and left, and I saw an opportunity for growth, and I said, hey, I could I could step in and fill that role, which was really uh, naive of me, I think, at the time, because I had no experience in tax. But uh, it was baptism by fire, and, and very quickly was in the middle of tax season, 
Well, and very quickly, I had to figure out what I was doing because I was talking with CPAs and attorneys and financial advisors all day long, and they were firing questions uh, at me, and and I had to, you know, know what I was talking about. So I learned really quickly, got exposed to a, a ton of different strategies because I was talking with so many professionals all over the country. I, I learned a lot of things that, mo- like I said, most people aren't going to come across such a broad array of of strategies and experiences so quickly. So, you know, as I look back on that, I'm really grateful for that experience because it, it taught me more than I could have learned in any other way. No, absolutely. And, and a lot of people are somewhat familiar with estate planning, but less so asset protection. And, yeah. and some may even think that's aggressive or, or, you know, getting around taxes, et cetera. So maybe just speak to that a little bit, how it's actually fairly important to many people, even not the wealthiest of the wealthy. Sure. Yeah. I mean, really, so, so starting with asset protection, we live in a really litigious country. You know, you, you go to another country, South America, Europe, and lawsuits are just far less common than they are here. Um, one of the things that bothered me a lot in law school is when I would study things like products liability or torts and and people were getting sued and getting sued, suing and getting sued, and judgments that you know were issued against people. I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, a doctor in California had a successful practice. He was near retirement, and his he sent his office staff, you know, a secretary out to get some sandwiches for the office for lunch. And, you know, really nice boss to go and provide lunch for the office and everything. So while the secretary was out, she got in a car accident. And as a result, a couple of people actually died. And and that doctor thought he was protected. He had a corporation, you know. And what happened, though, is he got sued for vicarious liability, meaning that, you know, because his office staff was under, was on the clock, basically, he was responsible for her. Therefore, he was responsible for the death of those people, which to me seems really convoluted. Like it wasn't his fault that those people died, but he had the deep pockets. And so that's, that's who was held, uh, put on the hook and, and he lost everything. You know, it was a multi-million dollar suit. He lost everything. He wasn't able to retire and he didn't even do anything wrong, you know? And so we, we run across things like that all the time. And, and the idea of asset protection is arranging your affairs, your assets, your property, your, your, money, whatever, in such a way that if somebody does sue you, especially if it's a frivolous lawsuit, that it, it makes it very difficult to access those assets. And it, it actually, if you structure it right, makes suing you much more unattractive in the first place. So what it does is it disincentivizes a lot of those frivolous lawsuits in the first place. So hopefully, does that answer your question? No, absolutely. It's sort of like you, if you have an alarm on your own, we also want to put the sign out front so that people say, right. okay, Maybe I'll just try the next house. Right? right, exactly. So, you know, reducing the, the, the first key of asset protection is reducing the likelihood of getting sued in the first place. Makes perfect sense. Well, that certainly is very complementary to a proper estate plan as well. And maybe to back up, um, we hear the term estate planning, legacy planning, and some people have different ideas and some people don't really know at all. What would you say a good definition of that is? And then what are some of the key components at the most basic level, and then certainly as things get complex. Yeah. So in our firm, the way we look at estate planning is kind of in three parts. There's the the life plan. In other words, the the parts of the plan that affect you while you're still alive, such as incapacity. You know, if you if you are in an accident or have dementia or something like that and can't make decisions for yourself, 
it's important to have powers of attorney in place so you don't your your loved ones don't have to fight a court battle to try and get authority to make decisions for you. Asset protection actually falls under that lifetime because you're you're preventing yourself from losing assets. You know that would that would prohibit you from retiring or from enjoying your your life. You know enjoying the the things that you've accumulated over time through your hard work. And the third element of that life plan would be would be long term care planning, right? Because that can deplete somebody's assets very quickly if they don't you know have the right long-term care insurance or they don't have enough assets to self-fund or or maybe they need to qualify for Medicaid how do they do that and you know preserve their house or or whatever so so that's the first element is is planning for things that affect you while you're alive the second element is what traditionally people think of as estate planning which is your you know how do you get your name how do you get assets from your name you know the deceased person's name to your children or the beneficiary's names and you know, that's where a will, a trust, a beneficiary designation, that's where those types of things come into play. And the goal there is, number one, to avoid probate, you know, a, a long, prolonged court process that can be pretty expensive, to avoid probate and to make sure that your wishes are carried out properly. And I can give some good and bad examples of how that has worked and hasn't worked. And then, so so that transfer plan is important. And then the third element that we look at is the family aspects. You know, for example, guardianship for the kids. I could share a couple of horror stories if we have time there. How to pass on values, how to, uh, uh, you know, reduce the likelihood of conflict between your loved ones, how to preserve uh, memories, you know, things like that. So estate planning touches on uh, uh, actually quite a bit of things. And it's not just for the super wealthy, Right. If you are over eighteen and have no assets, you still at least should have powers of attorney in place. That's that's basic. You can do that with free online forms that you fill out. Right. So estate planning is really truly for everybody. What's needed varies. Right. Depending on the situation, but but everybody needs something. Yeah. No, that's great. I think you could probably even teach us a little bit more by sharing some of the examples you were alluding to, uh, both good and bad, I guess, in terms of proper planning or not properly planning. Sure. I'll, I'll share a couple of examples of each. So not properly planning, first of all, I had a client in Texas who her and her husband had been married about 20 years, but it was a second marriage for him. And he had a daughter from his previous marriage. She was estranged. So they hadn't had any contact for or over 20 years. Well, he died without having any planning in place. And, and now his wife was left with the house and, you know, some other things. But she was stuck. She, what she wanted to do was create her own planning documents to avoid having to go through a headache when she passed away. But we couldn't really fully do her planning until her husband's assets went through probate. Problem was, the, the house in this case, the, the default laws of Texas say that if it's a second marriage, then 50% needs to go to the children and 50% goes to the spouse, that, the, the default law of, of that state. And that's not how he would have wanted it. He would have wanted all of it to go to his wife. But so, so we couldn't, she couldn't sell the house. She couldn't refinance it. She couldn't even transfer it to her trust until that probate process was complete. And then uh, essentially 25% of the house would have gone to that estranged daughter. They couldn't even find her. So, so it just caused all kinds of headaches and problems. I don't even know what she landed up doing at the end of the day. I think she just decided to not worry about it because she couldn't find the, the, the daughter. So she's basically stuck. Her options are really limited. 
there are worse circumstances that could arise, but but that that was just one example that popped out to me. Uh, a bad example. Now, on the flip side, a really good example. I had a neighbor here, just right next door. She passed away in her in her home, and she had a trust. She didn't have any kids. She didn't have any any descendants, but she had a trust and and had designated some different siblings who would inherit the house. Well, within a month, they'd cleaned out the house and sold it to another neighbor, actually, and it turned into an Airbnb. I mean, within a very, very short period of time, super smooth and easy, and they were able to to reap the financial rewards, you know, of that house very quickly and not have to worry about it on long term and, and take it through a court process. So, so uh, and and she didn't have much by way of assets; she just had the house. But uh, the trust allowed that process to take weeks instead of months or years, um, and saved tons of money. Yeah, and that's a especially fascinating story because we often think, well, if you have assets and children, you know, kind of a no-brainer, right? And if you don't have children, maybe not as much, but that's a great, great example of she still had wishes on on house, right? And those were honored quickly, frankly, because of the trust. Yeah, exactly. I'll share one more example, bad example, and this goes to with children, right? I mentioned uh, guardianship, making sure you name guardians for minor children. So we had a, a, here in Southern Utah, a husband and wife went up into the mountains hiking just kind of a getaway for the weekend. And they left their kids with uh, their in-laws. And it's rare here in Southern Utah to have a storm. We don't get a lot of rain here. But just so happens that while they were up in the mountains, there was a a pretty violent storm, which they can pop up pretty quickly. And they went underneath a tree to get out of of the storm. And the tree was struck by lightning and it killed both uh, the husband and wife. And that's tragic enough, of course, but they didn't have any estate planning documents in place. And so Naturally, both sets of grandparents thought that they would be the best suited to take care of the grandkids. So they each got a lawyer, went to court, and it took five years to determine who would be the permanent guardian of these children. Well, that can happen in five years. In the meantime, there's all kinds of fighting. I can't even imagine how much cost went into that, probably hundreds of thousands of dollars. And the insurance policies were locked up, the IRAs, 401ks were locked up. Nothing could be resolved until that guardianship piece was decided by a judge. And all of that could have been avoided with a very simple assignment of guardianship that the parents had, you know, filled out ahead of time. But what a, you know, what a tragic, in my opinion, tragic and unnecessary process. It probably messed up that, uh, you know, the, a lot of the relationships and things in that family long-term. Absolutely. No, it's, it's so simple, but it, it's important, but not urgent to people, right? And so it just, right. thinking about it, but- you know, we think we're going to live forever. Which, which many of us will live a long time, but one person in, you know, a thousand or, or whatever will die early and, and, and you don't know when it's going to be. So it, better to be prepared. Yeah. And uh, in reading your bio, uh, it talks about your extensive expertise and knowledge and work in the dental professional community, but also medical. You can certainly speak to that, but also just in general, who's kind of an ideal client, an ideal situation for you to kind of bring your resources to bear and, and help. Yeah. And, you know, so my real focus is business owners, a broader category, but I got into the dental field specifically because when I was working for that asset protection company, the asset protection that we were marketing was to medical professionals because they have a higher than usual lawsuit occurrence, right? Uh, they, their, their liability is high. 
And so, so that's how I got to be part of this team of subject matter experts. They, they focus on the dental industry and they liked me. They liked the way I, I approached planning and asked me to be part of their team. I left that company soon after they asked me to be part of their team, but they wanted me to stay on with them. And so I've worked with them now for almost a decade. But in the dental and I mean, the dental and medical industry, the, the only reason why that focus is because of kind of the, the path that I got onto with the asset protection company, but also because, you know, dentists, doctors, they typically are higher earners. So I can make a big difference for them in tax, you know, income tax planning. They're at higher liability risk. So I can help out in asset protection planning. You know, most of them will have one or more rental properties that need to be structured as well as other assets. And, and of course, everybody needs some sort of estate planning. And so, so, so with that particular industry, there's a lot more that I can do for them than say, you know, a W2 employee, even if, even if they make a lot of money. So, but business owners are really my, my bread and butter. I, I work mostly with all, all types of business owners, whether they be medical professionals or manufacturers or, you know, real estate investors or, or whatever the case may be. Excellent. Well, and I know we've talked a little bit about the the basics and the building blocks, if you will, of a good estate plan, but as, as well as the asset protection. At the higher level, to the extent you work with wealthier and, and even more successful individuals, maybe speak to that because that's what a lot of people think of as as estate planning, where we want to get things to the next generation and you know do it in a way that's efficient. And, and if the, to the extent there's an estate tax, plan well for that. And it's a very unique time. Maybe you can speak to that in terms of a large uh, lifetime gift and estate exemption, which is, is many of us think is, is going to change if nothing happens uh, and maybe yeah. not speak. Yeah, thanks. So so I'll start with the estate tax exemption. Historically, uh, I, even, I actually did a paper on this in law school, not knowing that I was going into estate planning. But historically, that exemption amount has fluctuated significantly. The estate tax started in 1913. Prior to that, there was no such thing as, in fact, there was no income tax before that either, at least no federal income tax. But but it's fluctuated a lot. The exemption's been super low. Even in the last 20 years, the exemption has gone from 600000 which is pretty low, to unlimited. That was just one year that we got an unlimited exemption to 5 million index for inflation. And then a few years ago, it doubled. So it's essentially 10 million index for inflation. And that that doubling is going to sunset, which is what you're alluding to, in 2026. It'll it'll drop back down to 5 million index for inflation per person. So the vast majority of Americans aren't going to really need to worry about estate taxes, but for people who have more than 5 million of assets, they're likely to have to deal with an estate tax of some sort. And so the rate, the estate tax rate is 40%, which is pretty significant because we've already paid taxes on all of that money. And and now we're getting hit with another 40% on top of what we've already paid. And so it's not a very popular tax in general in, in either party. So how do we approach that planning, right? What, what do people need to look for? What kinds of things do they need to be aware of? Number one, a lot of people don't realize that their life insurance, even though it's not subject to income tax, is part of their estate. So So it adds to their potential estate taxability. But th- that's the easiest asset to make sure you move it out of your estate. And you do that through an irrevocable life insurance trust. So not only is is it important if you're getting up there, you know, in your estate value and your net worth, 
to move your insurance policies into an irrevocable life insurance trust. But ideally, you're going to purchase the policies in an irrevocable life insurance trust in the first place. And you may even want to get some additional coverage so that there's liquid cash to pay any potential estate tax so you don't have to sell the property or the business or whatever. So I forget the other aspects of your question that you asked, but uh, but yeah, what, so what? Uh, very unique is uh, on the one hand, it's a, it's a large exemption, so the vast majority, ninety nine point something percent of Americans, don't feel like they're affected, and yet it's going to be cut in half in a couple of years. Right. And then you know people are living so so long. So I have clients and prospects and friends I'll meet with that are very successful. They might be worth fifteen or twenty million dollars, and they're only in their fifties. And right now they may not have a problem, but I I say, well, you know, if you and your spouse agree to die between now and twenty twenty six, there's definitely no problem. However. It, what is more likely is one or both of you is going to live another 30 plus years and we put a small growth rate on where you are now, right? And so the lake goes off and they say, well, okay, that could be a big issue and how do we deal with it? And, and so there's opportunities to kind of proactively plan right now. Yeah. And, and that brings up a good point. I know your firm has a pretty interesting strategy to deal with qualified accounts that, that leverages life insurance as well. Fantastic idea. There's, the point is the estate tax is completely avoidable. If, if you do planning with someone who understands all the different options, there are so many options out there to completely eliminate the estate tax. There's charitable tools, there's life insurance tools, there's irrevocable trust planning and gifting and all kinds of different things. And, and the key there is to work with someone who understands the, all the ins and outs of the tax code because it's really easy to make a mistake. The tax code is so enormous and convoluted that if if you're not working with someone who's experienced who understands not just the estate tax elements, but there's capital gains implications, there's income tax implications, and all of those tied together in the tax code, and and all of them affect somebody's estate. So so there there's a, a huge opportunity, especially in the, in these next couple of years, for higher net worth people to take advantage of the current exemption and put their planning in place, so that regardless of what happens when they pass away, their children aren't going hit, to get hit with this huge estate tax. Absolutely. That, that's fantastic advice. And I guess the flip side is we get caught up in numbers and assets and money. And yet there's a whole another side of this, which is more legacy and values. Yeah. You actually touched on that briefly, but maybe expand on that. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's this great movie that, to- that perfectly illustrates the, this concept, I think. It's called The Ultimate Gift. Um, really great movie. Very family friendly. There's nothing really questionable or anything in there. But in this in this movie, it, it's about multi billionaire, this very very rich man who is is knows he's going to pass away. He owns several corporations and pieces of real estate and all this kind of stuff. And he want he wants to make sure that all of the wealth that he's accumulated doesn't just get wasted by greedy family members, you know, and, and that it doesn't just destroy people because. If, if you don't learn skills to be able to manage wealth, then wealth can destroy you. And we've seen that, you know, in the news multiple times. So in this movie, he, he creates a series of experiences, tests, whatever you want to call them, to help his, in this case, his grandson, learn important life lessons that will help him manage the wealth. And, and if he, you know, if he, he's designed it so that if he doesn't, learn these tests or these lessons well, he's not going to get the, the asset. So the, the idea of legacy planning is not just leaving your wealth to somebody, it's leaving it responsibly. It's making 
a positive mark on the world. We actually do retreats, or, or I should say, we we will be doing them. We've actually we're in the process of designing retreats, but we we've designed some retreats specifically for that purpose to not just help people with their documents, but help them to leave a legacy. So we have classes to help a family with councils. If you're familiar with the concept of family councils, business succession. So transitioning the business from one generation to the next and teaching those skills and, and looking at the leadership structure. We've got classes about, about passing on family stories. A great example in my own personal life, my, my grandfather recently passed away and he was a Marine and a firefighter. And when he was a teenager, he actually grew up in, in Miami area in Southern Florida. And he not happened to knock on the door of Amelia Earhart. So, so she invited him and his friend in and gave them cookies. And he just was describing her house, which had all of these little airplane parts. You know, the furniture was made out of different airplane parts and the clock on the wall had propellers as the hands on the clock. And he was just describing all of this. And my brother-in-law does videography and he was recording this. It was my grandparents' 90th birthday. So we were all gathered together and he recorded this story and made DVDs for the family. And my kids have watched that DVD dozens of times, literally dozens of times. And, and th those memories, those stories are now have been passed on to subsequent generations. So those are some of the things that we don't think of as much when we're doing estate planning, but sometimes those can be the most memorable, the most, the, the most valuable assets that we have are those, those memories. One other thing I'll share, there was a, a survey done among wealthy families a number of years ago, and, and the surveyor asked the wealthy families, what's their most valuable asset that they can pass on to the next generation? And it was interesting what a lot of them said. They said it wasn't their wealth or their assets or anything. It was the relationships that they had developed with other people. Because, you know, wealthy people work with other wealthy people, right? And those relationships, political relationships, business relationships, educational relationships, those were the most valuable assets that they could pass on because it gives the next generation a huge head start in life. So to me, that's the most compelling and interesting part of estate planning is, is the legacy that we're leaving and, and the life lessons and, and stories and relationships that we can pass on. So that's fascinating. And maybe just, yeah, one follow-up is sometimes uh, folks in their 30s, 40s, 50s think mom and dad have it all taken care of, you know, say, say there's a bunch of wealth up there yeah. and they either don't ask questions or they just sort of assume, you know, and and that's not always the case. And what I find, and you may as well, is some folks in that older generation are less forthcoming and transparent. And in some ways, they're maybe embarrassed about how much wealth they have. They don't want their kids to know, right? So are there good practices around that? It sounds like perhaps these retreats might might deal with that. Yeah. If you can get people to come, the, the older generation, I, I struggle with this in my own family. My grandparents they're not super wealthy, but they have this piece of land in Virginia. It's over 100 acres in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Absolutely beautiful piece of land, a two-story log cabin, just absolutely gorgeous. And all of us grandkids love going there. We have tons of memories of, of spending summers there. And, and But my grandparents refuse to talk about any of this. You know, they, they don't want to talk about death. They don't want to talk about their planning. And so they really haven't done anything. And they have a will that leaves it to their three sons. One of their sons doesn't even want the, anything to do with it. He's, he, he just doesn't care anything about it. So not an ideal situation. Whereas if, if they were willing to talk about it, 
then they could put that land in a what we call a dynasty trust, which doesn't leave the land to any one person or any series of people. It leaves it to the family at large. And you can you can put rules in place for who can use the land and and put some money aside to take care of it. And and that way multiple generations can enjoy it for a long time to come. So how do you have those conversations? It it really boils down to family dynamics. Education is key. I, I I enjoy that aspect of planning more than any other is, you know, I do webinars, I do in-person seminars and presentations. But but, you know, if 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 you can broach the subject in a way that's non-threatening, like, oh, I heard about this, you know, seminar, you might be interested, or, you know, grandma and grandpa or, or mom and dad, have you got your your planning in order? Do you have a trust? You know, I've I've got a great contact who can look over look look over it and just provide feedback for free. You know, so just just being brave enough, I guess, to have those conversations is the first step. Absolutely. Well, Jacob, this has been informative and uh, educational, and you have a very unique background with your clients, both in the professional and dental industry, but also just business as a whole. And then this last little bit we've been talking about, just sort of the the legacy and values component, which is is so crucial. So it's. It's uh, great to learn a little bit more about you. And for those listening, where, where can we find you to get in touch with you? Yeah. So lots of places. I'll, I'll just preface this with my, so the firm that I'm part of, Intervivos, we're a large national estate planning firm. I'm one of the managing partners. So we work all over the country, every state. I've done planning in almost every state. But to work with me personally, I have our website, Intervivos plan.com is our website and you can find my profile on there so you can contact the firm and ask for me or you can email me directly my email is jacob at intervivosplan.com i can provide my phone number or, you know whatever i'm pretty reachable i guess is the is the bottom line but to learn more about our firm the website intervivosplan.com is a good place to start so does that answer your question Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you again and uh, best of luck to you and your clients. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. You've been listening to the Legacy Leaders Podcast with Katie Beth Hand and Stan Miller. For more information on them and the show, please visit PinnacleLegacyLaw.com. If you like what you've learned today, do share the program with your friends and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.